The Wiggly Podcast, bringing your garden to life. Well, we're in the sitting room for number 15 podcast, aren't we, Rich? Well, 15 already. Incredible, isn't it? No pickers this week, but you can follow our show notes at Heather's blog, wigglywigglers.blogspot.com. What's on this week's show? Well, we've got Monty's Wormcast coming up. Great. Rob, who works with Al on the Wildflowers, says that they've been able to look at owl pellets so closely that they can see the worm bristles in them. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) He's a a, a font of knowledge, isn't he, Rob? He is. We've got our second Skype interview, and that's with Jane Peroni. Um, she's a deputy editor of The Guardian Unlimited, which is The Guardian's website. Right. But her claim to fame in Wiggly World is she has one of the best gardening blogs, in my opinion, in the whole country. Right. Al's coming in with a plant which smells a lot sweeter than Phil did last week. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Phil, this week. He's freshly bathed, I feel. Cleaner. Well, a bit yeah. cleaner, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> And we're going to talk to Phil about the entry-level stewardship scheme and how that should benefit food production and the environment in farming. Yeah, that'll be but interesting. I, yeah, I think we'll have to go back a little bit to find out why farmers get money for nothing. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so we better start with the show. Okay. And you and I are going to talk about fishes. Here we are, my fave subject, fishies. There's a little pond in, in your village, isn't there, Preston, on why? Yes. Right by the church, which we lit up for our play, A Christmas Carol, there is a pond. By the way, Christmas Carol, I must say, well done, Clive Scrooge. Ah, uh, right. He was talking, and I forgot to say that, that say last, last week. week. Yeah, yeah. Clive Dale, megastar, Scrooge. Well done, boy. The pond, just outside the church, when you travel down there in the evening, there's the most amazing sight. The whole thing moves. First of all, you think, oh, it's just waves. But when you look closer, it's completely silvery, wiggly thing. Yeah. And it is just a mass of this thing. Yeah. And everyone shone their lights on it and said, wow! Yeah, yeah. What are they? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're bleak. Now, there's all sorts of little fishies in that pond, but those shimmering sprat-like fishies that freak out when the lights go across the water are bleak. Hundreds of thousands of them in there, aren't there? I don't know, but it seemed like hundreds of thousands. There are. I think there pretty much are hundreds of thousands. They're only small fishies. They only sort of get to, I don't know, five inches long. And they're a really important fodder fish for some of the predators that live in the river and, and avian predators as well. And why is there so many in such a small space? Well, they go in there because it's like a place where small fish can spend their winter. It's a safe refuge for fish to spend their winter because it's, it's on a small tributary that goes into the Y. And since that pond's been cleaned out, it's relatively easy. The river comes up in spate and those small fish can move into the sanctuary of that tributary and they all end up milling around in that small pond. So it's a great place and it's safe from cormorants, say, for instance, who are decimating stocks of fish on the Wye at the moment. And it's also safe from the the heavy flows of a a winter spate river. Because when I first met you... One of our areas of common ground was that particular pond, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's funny, wasn't it? Because uh, I said, oh, I said, we were talking about church and the pond and what, and I said, oh, I sometimes pop down there and get some, some bait for when I go pike fishing. I said, did you? He said, did you, have you got permission to go down there? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, and it's one of the rare instances I did uh, have permission to go somewhere. But yes, it's a great place for my part. As a keen angler, I can pop down there and catch half a dozen fish for bait. And from and our uh, point of view, you know, we regard it as the village pond. Yeah. And it's certainly been maintained over the years much, much better. In fact, 
In a former life, I cleaned out the pond and I must tell you that it was it did, full of eels, eels yeah, which we yeah. had a lot of fun putting on Dangle's seat. Yeah, but yeah. But we'll leave that there. The eels are a species in decline as well, unfortunately, on the river. Actually, what I could, I must tell you, I went fishing on Sunday afternoon for a couple of hours. I just went down the river for a couple of hours. And as I walked down to the river, George, my little terrier, was in front of me. I couldn't pull him back, I couldn't get him back. And he walked down to the bank of the river and there were two kingfishers sat there and they were really communicating with one another in much the same way as they do in the spring, you know, if they're mating, they're chit-chat, chatting each other up and whatnot. And they were really communicating with one another and they weren't paying any attention to me. And I was as far as I am from Phil now, probably three yards away. And they were paying no attention to me whatsoever. So I walked up to the bank, couldn't get George back. George was really looking down to the river as well. And as I walked up to the bank, there was an otter and it was just under the surface of the water and amongst some sticks and looking up at me. And obviously really? these, the kingfishers were chattering about the otter being there because he was obviously fishing away. And eels, of course, are one of the prime food sources and favourite food sources of, of otters. Is that the first time you've seen an otter? Because they're pretty rare, aren't they? They're rare, but they are coming back. There are issues with, with otters coming back and recolonising rivers because really um, we're in a situation now there's lots of commercial fisheries and otters can cause real problems on commercial fisheries. But, but they, are, they are They are lovely. But again, there's a, there's a balance to be had. Last five years, I've seen... I saw a pair of otters probably three miles away from where we are now. I saw another pair of otters on a stretch of the Y below the Carrots, which is just outside of Herefordshire, where uh, there was a nest of bee-eaters. Do you remember that story about bee-eaters last year? I saw a big dog otter, probably about five miles from here, about three years ago, and then I saw that guy the other day. That's amazing. Prior to that, I've seen an otter a couple of times on the tour in North Devon when I was a kid when I used to go fishing on the river down there. But otters were decimated, really, and they were kind of wiped out again. It was bad river water quality. Lots of pollution causing problems, loss of habitat, and a cost of uh, a lot of food. You know. So, because they're back, things must be better. Yeah, the water quality is definitely better. I think people are more conscious of managing the rivers properly, leaving habitat, not not clearing out fallen trees from the side of the riverbanks. You know, I mean, even now, wildlife trusts and different organisations get funding to make otter halts by the side of tributaries on on main rivers and whatnot. So, uh, they're definitely coming back. And you're a keen fisherman, aren't you? Yeah, passionate Now, how are you going to justify that to me, Rich? Because there must be lots of listeners who are thinking, oh, I don't think you should do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, fishing is brilliant because it's one of those things, it's not just a pastime, it becomes part of you, really. I grew up fishing. I started fishing when I was a little tiny kid. And now it, it really is almost part of me. If I don't go fishing, it does affect my mood. I don't, I obviously know. don't go as much as, uh, <laughs> as I'd like to. Have you done you know, this week at all? But, uh, no, I'm going uh, Saturday, all day uh, Saturday, dawn till dusk so I'm looking forward to that but your your dad used to go fishing my dad loved fishing there's all different types of fishing but he was particularly keen on salmon fishing and of course loved eating salmon and you eat your fish don't you I eat some fish, certainly. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do is go fishing. If you catch a couple of trout, you know, take them home and feast on them, have guests over. And I like fishing for bass in the summertime off our coasts. Mm. And they, you know, obviously they taste really nice. Just take a couple of fish for the table, that's all you need. And there's, I think there's nothing more natural than, than being able to do that. And so inter- have you been fishing for those bleak? Yeah, those bleak. And uh, an interesting effort going back to the pond at Preston, there's all sorts of fishes in there, you know. They've got bleak and there's chub and dace and perch and roach and... Judging and there's a <laughs> one day I was down and I caught this little trout and this old farmer boy <laughs> whose name I won't mention but who you know he came waddling out of his farmyard and uh, looking at me with you know <laughs> slightly, in a slightly suspicious way and he sort of said all right I said yeah, all right how are you all right he said yeah I'm well, not so bad well, what are you doing here then 
I said, oh, you know, just catching a little few fishies for some pike fishing bait. I said, oh, right. And just, just as I was talking to him, I caught a trout, a little trout. Let's bear in mind this pond is tiny, but there's all sorts of fishies getting there. So I got this trout, and I said, oh, would you like a trout? He said, oh, well, I'll be all right now. Yeah, I wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> so I gave him, his, gave him his trout. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, my Herefordian accent perhaps isn't as good as it should be. I gave him his trout, and, and we've been friends ever since. Oh, <laughs> that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Now, that's lovely, and we must talk more about fishes, mm. but you've just been writing some instructions this week, haven't you, on habitat. Yeah. And I was thinking that it's probably the best moment to put up your nesting boxes. Yeah. And we've actually definitely. got an article or a, a mention in Country Living's magazine with the nesting wreath, so all the little um, bits and bobs that you right. can pick. Yeah, they're brilliant. For the birds. Yeah. So tell me where you should cite your nesting box. I think the most important thing about a nesting box is that is the is, well one of the most important things is that it faces away from the prevailing conditions. So if you imagine, really, when you provide habitat boxes, animals are very much like us in that they're looking for a nice, cosy, safe, sheltered place to make their nests in. So nesting boxes need to face between north and southeast. That's right. a good rule of thumb. So if you can point that nesting box facing that direction, that's ideal. You can put nesting boxes on trees or on the walls of the house. Often people don't think about putting them on the walls of the house, but that's often a really good place, especially for sparrows, mm. to nest. So if you've got a, if you've got a, one of the walls on your house that faces that direction, that's ideal. And then between sort of three and five metres up. Should you put nesting material in there ready for them? Or no, not? it's not worth doing that because yeah. birds have a natural propensity to make the, build their own nests anyway. Mm. So they'll find a suitable void and that's what they'll make their nests in. It's sensible to put those nesting wreaths in you know, other suitable material that birds could forage and, and pick up for their nests in the proximity of a nest box. Yeah. You know, that's going to save them some time to forage for suitable nesting material. And now's the moment. Now's a good time. Anything, I think National Nest Box Week is the 14th to 21st of February. Mm, so uh, that'll be a really good time put a nest box up if you're looking to encourage birds to nest in the spring i got a fab corny wiggly advert <laughs> for bird lovers everywhere <laughs> buy your nest box here sorry sorry where did, you, <laughs> where did you get that from where's that from it came in my head just then oh, did it? Oh, well, there, there you are then yeah. right thank you Richard farmer Phil's just come in Hello, Phil. Hi, Hev. Hi, Rich. Hi, Phil. I must tell you both that the Times Online website has just brought out an article, and it's called Peas in a Podcast. Isn't that sweet? And it's by Madeline Acey. And guess who it's all about? No idea. You two. <laughs> and me. <laughs> Peas in a Podcast. Really? It is. No way. Have a look online, Times Online. Oh, brilliant. Phil, you've come in this week, and I know that you've been scratching your bonds. <laughs> trying to fill in a few forms. Well, just for a change, I know you give me a lot of jip about my form filling, but <laughs> I've got some more forms to fill in, and so, yes, I have. I do give him a little bit of stick and the other farmers in the pub because they moan about filling in the forms. Yeah. And I say, if I filled in a form to get me £30,000, I'd be well happy. <laughs> great, and yeah. you wouldn't hear me moaning yeah. about that no, form. But I'm sure Phil's going to put us right on all that because he wants to explain subsidies, how they work, why we're doing them, and are farmers getting something for nothing? Have you got about 10 days? <laughs> <laughs> well, we will make uh, it into a series, darling. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think there's definitely some mileage in it. Yes, and no moaning. We can't have moaning. No moaning farmers, no. No. Phil's not a moaning farmer. I I was going to say, I'm not on the whole a moaning farmer. You never see a farmer on a bike. That's because it's too much like hard work. Yeah, (laughs) and he nearly got on his bike just after Christmas, but... Not no. quite. No, quite. He needs to do, though, doesn't he? Yeah. He certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that I'd finished the mince pies, so I didn't need to get on the bike. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> he does have exercise every day, so he takes really? Monty to the bus stop. Yeah, right. Then he comes back. I cycle to meet him, yeah. so it depends if I go fast, whether I can do six or eight miles. That's very coordinated, isn't it? It is. And then... He lifts my bike into the back of the truck right. when we go home. So Excellent. there's his exercise yeah, there every day. <laughs> <laughs> and what a physique I've got to show you. Yeah, it fills up a body strength. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Staggering. <laughs> right. Okay, so Phil, the ELS. The Give enti- us the briefest background on that and then we'll go back in time to know why the heck we've got to this point. Very briefly, the subsidy reform within the EEC has come up with the latest system, which is based on the idea that farmers have to do some environmentally beneficial work on their farms in order to get some of their money. So where historically we've been paid a subsidy to grow wheat or barley or whatever, they've now decided that a percentage of that money we will only get if we fulfil certain environmental criteria. So, simple example is that the maintenance of habitat, hedges, trees that sort of thing, the things that are vulnerable within, a, particularly an arable, but livestock as well, under ELS, trees within a field, you don't plough underneath the canopy, you leave an area underneath and look after the tree, and effectively you get paid money for doing that every year. You also have to do a certain amount of paperwork type criteria, i.e. lay out your environmental plans, what you're going to do with your waste, what you're going to do with your manure how you're going to make sure that you don't have any problems with pesticides and so on. So the idea is just to bring it all up to a standard. And within that, there are three levels of subsidy and therefore three levels of environmental effort, if you like. The base level, you get paid no extra for, but you have to reach that standard in order to get all of your base level subsidy. And that's called cross-compliance. There's a lot of jargon in this includes certain environmental things that you have to fulfil to get your subsidy to start with. Thereafter, you can then enter yourself for ELS, or entry-level scheme, and it's designed to be fairly easy to achieve. You then get another small increment of money for doing that, and then if you want to go the whole step, what used to be called the Countryside Stewardship Scheme, which some of our listeners might have heard of, now becomes the higher level scheme and for that you're talking about much more major environmental projects, um, capital projects, planting hedges, laying hedges, planting trees, perhaps planting whole woodlands and all the associated things and you put the whole farm in as a plan for that. Right. And once you've entered the farm and provided you comply with the criteria, these schemes last for five or ten years, depending on which scheme you're in. So you're committed to do that for five years once you've started. So in my terms, looking back in time, you ploughed your field and you ploughed it to the edges. And that meant that that crop allowed your farm to turn over more money because you sold that crop on the basis of production. Now... Essentially, you're going to leave areas of the field fallow so that nothing is produced on them. So you actually turn over less 
And so the subsidy is to encourage you to do that. Put very simply, and, and there are very complex means for different crops of governments paying their farmers money, but after the war, farmers started receiving subsidy based on the amount of crop grown. So whether the price was artificially held up or they received money per tonne, it was based on the amount of produce you produced. Was that because we were short of food yeah, at that point? The, the war had left us short of food and it had left us short of money so that anything that we could eat or export or both was beneficial to the country. And it was the whole idea was designed to kick farmers on, get them more professional, more intensive, and to, at, at that time the idea was to basically gear up production in some form. And so what that meant here was that many of the fields that previously were woodland were ploughed up. Yeah, we had what was called war ag, which was the start of it, where land was brought into cultivation literally to feed the country, because, of course, during the war there were no imports. Uh, it was very difficult to import food, and resources in terms of labour were scarce because all the menfolk had, had gone off to fight, so that you were left with the war ag, which provided the money, and you had the land army, effectively, who were mostly the women left at home to do the work. And so that was the start of the idea. In the 90s, they started to think that they wanted to change the subsidy more to an area-based subsidy rather than a, the actual produce-based subsidy. And the reason for doing that was that there were surpluses within Europe of food and that they reckoned that by putting it more to area, it would try and take some of the reason to just keep hiking yields up away from the farmer. Not necessarily with a great success. And now what they're proposing to do is to steer subsidy more towards environmental benefits. And now, by putting environmental constraints on us, that effectively should mean that we maintain the countryside in a visual and environmental fashion that people enjoy looking at and is good for the environment yeah. and at the same time we still receive enough subsidy to stay in business having had 50 years of being subsidised the financial implications of taking it away are not easy. So in your mind <coughs> is this definitely the way forward? In my mind as a farmer I definitely think it's the way forward for perhaps su surprising reasons I don't believe in subsidy thing. I don't think it's justifiable and I think it's distorted the market and has dug us the hole that we're in now. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm also well aware that without any subsidy at all, the economies of scale and the prairieization of, of the land would be a, an easy option to go down. Simple economics shows you to the idea that, that big fields and just production at the least cost. So somewhere in the middle, there is a common ground. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with all of the criteria that the government put on these environments. You know, I don't necessarily think that some of the things that they say are an environmental benefit are, but that's nitpicking. On the whole, the idea is right for the countryside. Right. We'll hear more about yeah. farming subsidies, and what I really want to talk about is the hedgerow. Not the hedgerow, it's the hedgerow. Hedgerow, yeah. right, right. Phil thinks the hedges should be looked after in such and such a way. Yeah. The government thinks they should be looked after in a different way. And we know the government are really expert on hedges. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. So thank you, Phil. Just uh, go and have a beer. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers, Phil. <laughs>
yesterday, which it was quite exciting because Rob came, who works with Alison, and gave us the new list of plants that are available for Wigglies this summer. That's right. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, please, yeah. Burr reed, corn mint, right. penny royal, dog violet, meadow buttercup, maiden pink, ladies' bed straw, cypress sedge, common mallow, wild strawberry, nice. soft rush, great mullion Aaron's rod, dark mullion, wood anemone, they're beautiful, yeah. greater spearwort, wild garlic, ramson, yeah. snake's head fritillary, yeah. bog asphodel, tutson, bats in the belfry, and meadow saxy fudge. Great names, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, lovely names. My favourites will no doubt be the wild garlic, the wood anemone, and the snake's head fritillary. Right, uh, snakes head retiller. We've got those here, haven't we? We've got those in the garden Whitney already. Garden, yeah. They're lovely. And ramsons are great because, of course, you can uh, you get great flowers, but you can eat the leaves. It's Absolutely. Great. Beautiful. And they don't grow with bluebells. They don't grow with bluebells, is they that don't. right? No. That's interesting. Alison Dint. Hi, Alison. It's good to see you. Hello, Rich. Um, you've just come back from a, a real adventure. Yeah, only a little one. Where have you been? Um, ten days skiing in Canada. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. A little one. Yeah. Yeah. Hard life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just popped off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You had a brilliant time, didn't you? Yeah, brilliant time, yeah. Whereabouts in Canada did you go? Uh, flew into Calgary, stayed in Banff and skied Lake Louise and Sunshine Village. Oh, wow. wow, what an adventure. Something's happening with Alison. You know she's the only Wiggly employee ever, and probably will be forever, <laughs> To go to America three times in three months. Uh, almost certainly. Ridiculous. <laughs> 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 yeah, they did almost call me certainly. Judith Chalmers when I was out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Well, what age were they? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Back to the grindstone, really, Back now, to I guess. It, yeah. Yeah. Cold and wet. Back to, back to hard work. And you've, you've come in today and you've brought us a lovely looking, tiny little plant. What have, you, what have you brought us today? Sweet violets today. Sweet violets. Uh, spring flowering plant. Um, it'll be flowering in the next few weeks. Right, um, right. All the way up till the end of March. So really, it starts to flower that early? Yeah. And what do the, what does the flowers look like? Uh, flowers are little tiny blue flowers, usually hidden under the leaves. Sometimes you can get like a white variation, um, but most of ours are blue at the moment. Right. Somebody once told me that the, the blue ones smell, but the white ones don't smell. Is there any truth in that? Well, it might be another variation of violet, but the sweet-scented violets always smell. So either so yeah, if they're white or colour. blue, they'll, yes. they'll, they'll definitely yeah. get some scent from them. So where would you expect to see them in the wild? They're um, naturally found in woodland setting under the canopy of trees. Um, that's where they're naturally grown. But obviously they grow very well in a garden situation. They spread throughout the forest floor. So you can imagine walking through the woods early morning. They smell absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet they do. Fantastic. So they're relatively easy to grow if you pop them into a garden, they, they grow quite easily? Uh, relatively easy, yes. What sort of area would you look to put them in? Light, dark? Well, they grow um, in a shady spot or they grow in a sunny spot in your garden. Wow. And they adapt well to base. So they're pretty versatile, are they? Yeah. And yeah. <coughs> yeah. violets supposed to be good for treating colds. Are you, you going to tell me something about that? Alison has a cold and really wanted to tell us how violets were good for colds, but we've practised it so much now that it's not funny. But they are, aren't they, Al? Yeah, they Thank are. Thank you. Alison, really good. <laughs> and here's Monty with the Weekly Wiggly Wormcast. Woo! The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on worms. 
earthworm burrows are between three and ten millimeters in diameter and serve as channels for plant roots and water drainage thank you monty and here is number two interview skyped with jane Hi Jane, thank you for joining in the Wiggly podcast with our second ever Skype interview. Are you very experienced in Skype? This is I'm a Skype first timer, a <laughs> Skype newbie. Okay. okay, it's good fun, isn't it? It's very good fun. I'm very excited. Excellent. Um, tell me a little bit about you because I, I read your blog from time to time, but I know our listeners would like to know more about what you do and why you've now started a blog. Well, uh, my day job is as Deputy Editor News and Politics for Guardian Unlimited. That's the website of the Guardian newspaper. So my day job is as a journalist. And But the th- one thing I wasn't getting to write about during my day job was uh, one thing that I'm very passionate about, which is gardening, specifically organic gardening and my allotment. Hmm. And so I set up a blog to actually be an outlet for my thoughts about those subjects. And, and- it just kind of grew from there. Tell us exactly what a blog is, because I look at your blog, um, but lots of listeners and myself don't understand the feed bit. Oh, right. Well, all a blog is, in very basic terms, is a website that's got a series of entries in reverse chronological order. In other words, the newest stuff is at the top. That's all you need to know about blogs. Some people describe them as being like personal diaries or or web journals but not all blogs are like that mine actually is a bit of a sort of a a personal web diary but some blogs are used for all different kinds of things which aren't really personal style and the way that it works is that you can go onto my blog and read my latest thoughts my latest writings or you can use what's called uh, annoyingly and and jargon heavy uh, phrase which is an rss reader to go and to read the post which is basically a way of accessing lots of blogs at once um, on one easy page rather than having to go to my blog you can read it all together on one page with lots of other gardening blogs so it's Um, like itunes for podcasts but it's something else for blogs Exactly. I mean, there's the RSS reader is a bit of a, a red herring, really. It's basically just, it's like a personalised newspaper. Yeah. Uh, that's the way to think of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and your blog is all about your allotment. So tell, yeah. tell us about that. Well, as I say, I wanted to write about what I was doing, growing fruit and veg and sort of trying to be an ethical consumer and it's kind of sprung out of that since I've had an allotment being a writer you tend to want to write about these things and being terribly self-obsessed as all journalists are (laughs) Um, so I just once I got my allotment a few years back I started about a year and a half ago to do the blog because I wanted to record when I was doing things what worked what didn't work and also to get in touch with other other people um, with allotments because believe it or not there are quite a few allotment blogs out there and so it was just a way of putting having a place to put things like pictures and notes to self about various things that worked and things that didn't work and to rant about my compost teeth and you know the the slugs that are eating my lettuce and things like that Mm. and where is your allotment and what sort of situation is it how big is it well, uh, my allotment is uh, five poles, which to those of you not acquainted with the archaic measurement system that's used by most allotments, uh, they call them poles or rods or perches. I think they're almost the same, which is about 125 square 
metres, I believe. So quite small, actually quite small. Probably the size of a small Victorian terrace's garden, I would say. Yeah. But plenty enough room to be getting along with when you take over a very overgrown plot. And it's in a small town in leafy Bedfordshire. And did you have to apply a long time to get the allotment? Because I have a lot of customers who say it's very Mm. difficult to actually get an allotment because lots of them have been built on or, you know, developed in some way. It wasn't a problem for me. The site that I'm on is fairly well used. There were about two plots available when I got mine. And it depends where you live, really, how much in demand allotments are. In some parts of the country, they're crying out for people to take them on. But uh, I work in London and lots of my colleagues can't get allotments or are on long waiting lists because, obviously, in London, space is of a premium. Yes. So it depends where you live, you know, how, how easy it's going to be to get hold of one. It's certainly worth, you know, digging around and inquiring around because some are owned by local councils, but some are privately owned and run in different ways. So you've got to kind of do a bit of rooting around mm. and asking around to find all the sort of hidden away ones. How long have you had yours? Um, I've had my allotment now for about four or five years, I think. And before that, I was I was gardening in my back garden, but I moved to a house that had quite a small garden and wanted to have more room for fruit and veg, so mm. I branched out, as it were. How has it developed over that time? Oh God, it's <laughs> well, it, it's well, I wouldn't say transformed. Um, it's. When I took it over, it hadn't been cultivated for many a year. It was covered in brambles, couch grass, thistles. There was something approximating compost heap of many years standing. Yeah. Um, so it was a real nightmare job. And in the first year, I did quite badly in a way. And, you know, I really struggled because it's quite hard when you first get going. It's quite discouraging when you clear a bed and then it, instantly, it seems, the couch grass is back. So it's been a real uphill battle to get it into a state of cultivation. And it's one of those things with having a full-time job, mm. you know, you, it's, very, it's very, very hard. It's a hard thing to keep the couch grass away. So I'm, it's a constant battle, but it's a fun battle. I can never live up to the kind of the retired gents who are also on the allotment who, you know, have scarped there every day and theirs are all, I sort of look at theirs with envy, <laughs> their sort of tidy, neat plots. And I'm sure they look at mine and think, oh my God, look at the state of that. But, you know, you do what you can. And yeah. uh, as long as I get some crops, that's the main thing. Yeah. How long do you spend on your allotment? Well, in the summer, I try to go down, I often end up going down every evening, but it can only, sometimes it's only for five or ten minutes. Yeah. I'm only five minutes walk away. So I, I try to go down in, in, the, in the summer sort of every other night to do watering. And at the weekend, I might spend a few hours down there. Then obviously going into wintertime, a lot less time. You know, as it gets sort of colder and nastier, I tend to sort of spend more time doing sort of armchair gardening, reading seed catalogues and things. But obviously there's still stuff to be done mm. uh, whatever time of year. So it probably goes down to about sort of two or three hours a week in the winter. And does this save you going to the gym? Well, uh, yeah, uh, well, I think it does, actually. I mean, you have to be a bit careful because if you sort of start getting into sort of, you know, double digging and things and you haven't warmed up, you can actually do yourself an injury. Yeah. And sometimes I come back and, and I, the one thing I do suffer from is what I call gardener's triangle, which is where your hot sunny day leaning over weeding and you get a, a sunburn from the place where your t-shirt ends where it's rucked up <laughs> to the top of your trousers i know they're very Gardner's triangle you heard it here first <laughs> um, but yeah i do get a lot of exercise from it um you know just walking up and down carrying watering cans it's great exercise fresh air and it really does clear the mind after a, a busy day at work i have to say and i know you've mentioned wiggly wigglers on your blog hmm. 
Are you a customer? How does that work? I'm a bit of a, um, well, I can't think what the word is. I, I, I get loads of catalogues, let's put it that way. Yeah. And I do order from lots of different catalogues. I know I've ordered stuff from you before. And I, I, I sort of do switch around from different ones, hmm. just basically on, this, on what I see. Yeah. I mean, I know one of the things I, that I always order is, is the old slug nematodes from you and also from a couple of other firms, which are just great. And I've been toying with the idea, maybe you can convince me about this, I've been toying the idea of a wormery for a long time now mm. and I nearly I nearly got one for my 30th birthday which would be a really quite interesting present but I haven't quite taken the plunge and I keep every time I get your catalogue I look longingly at it mm. but maybe you can convince me I don't know what's holding me back really I think if you were going to have a wormery I'd have it for your kitchen rather than yeah. your allotment worms in your allotment are absolutely fine but an actual worm composting kit would mm. probably not produce the volume that you'll need so right. you usually our allotment customers have their can of worms at home and then yeah. they'll take worms from that can of worms and feed their compost heap so um yeah you don't you don't harm your wormery by taking worms out of it mm-hmm. um so i'd probably do it that way rather than having the composter down at the allotment i certainly yeah. have a normal composter but anyway we can we can talk about that oh, again. that's interesting i am such a composting evangelist i really am mm. i think my one one fear with the uh with, i eat an awful lot of uh citrus fruit grapefruit and things and i know the worms aren't keen on that so i'm thinking what am i going to do with all my citrus fruits that's my concern yeah i know but. exactly i know exactly what you mean but worms actually They've got nothing particularly against citrus fruit as long as you add something to balance it out. So in normal life, eggshells, a bit of lime mix does that. And usually you don't want to produce too acidic a compost. So there is a little bit of a compromise, but I also eat... Uh, quite a lot of citrus fruit, but also bananas, which are fine. And right. once, once you've balanced it with all the other things and a bit of cardboard or shredded paper does the world of good, practically it, it'll do just about anything. It's a little bit iffy at the beginning, but once your worms are used to the environment, they're pretty resilient. Once they've had a bit of tough love. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, now, I want to ask you about the most exciting thing that I've read on your blog, which is your new book oh yes that's right sorry i, I forgot all about every word of it uh, yes the book well how could i forget my book well i'm in the middle of writing a book which is going to be coming out the end of this year so that's a long way off but you have to do these things early and it's going to be about my allotment and it's not going to be a how-to manual or you must do this you must do that it's going to be it's going to be a bit of that in there there's going to be a bit of advice and tips and hints and a bit of allotment folklore, but it's mainly going to be sort of a, a sort of a narrative about what I do on, on my allotment. Not just going to be a repeat of the blog. Uh, it's going to be totally different from the blog, but it will be the same kind of writing. So my little uh, scrapes and incidents on the allotment, and it's going to be kind of looking through the seasons that what happens on the allotment when and things like that. So it's, it's quite good fun, quite lighthearted. It should be a good read for anyone who's either got an allotment uh, and have one for a few years or is thinking of getting one. And for those those people like myself who have lots and lots of cookery books but don't do mm. much cooking but really love the idea, just join in anyway. I can imagine that they will really enjoy this book. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there will be, a, there's going to be a couple of uh, chapters where I talk about harvesting your props and quite handily, my other half is uh, used to be a chef. So there's going to be a couple, couple of recipes in there and little sort of various little things that should be, should provide a lot of interest. But it's going to be hopefully fairly amusing as well. I'm not sort of trying to make it too heavyweight or, you know, I'm not claiming to be, you know, a Monty Don type figure dispensing wisdom <laughs> from on high or anything like that. It's all going to be very down to earth, quite literally. should be coming out at the end of the year, in time for the Christmas market. Fantastic. Well, hopefully Wiggly Wigglers will have some of those and we'll see how it goes. Marvellous. Thank you, Jane, very much Thanks, indeed. Emma. Cheers. Phew. Skype number two in the bag. Or in the can. Or on the hard drive, even. Oh, Richard! Technical whiz kid. That's right, that's me. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Jesse, before we go, you've been out and about. I have, yeah, a couple of talks this week. One at, up at New Radnor, which is between Kington and, and Raider, and another one down at uh, Blockley, just in, in, in Gloucestershire. Gardeners? Yeah, all keen gardeners, very keen gardeners. About 24 in the group at uh, New Radnor, and about 40, I think, down at Blockley. Really good group, really sort of interactive, we had lots of fun, lots of laughing. Talking about natural gardening, obviously, wormeries and, uh, and all things wiggly. Any of them podcast listeners? No, no one, unfortunately, was a podcast listener. But I'm hoping, after my attempts to encourage people to subscribe to iTunes and download the podcast, there should well be a few budding podcast listeners in the, in the next few weeks. But we all don't know, don't we, listener, that you're well ahead. You are taking your media as you like. You're on a roll. <laughs> wiggly podcast. Amongst the elite, wow. yeah. To conclude, if you want to comment, go to my blog, wigglywigglers.blogspot.com or email richard at wigglywigglers.co.uk or heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk or if you want to argue with Farmer Phil about anything... At all. Probably farming. (laughs) (laughs) Just sort of argue with it. Just argue. uh, pwg at lowerblakemere.co.uk Lovely to have you listening. I know there's lots of you now because last week when we just sent you a New Year's card, you were still there downloading away. So welcome to Wiggly's and we'll see you next week. See you, folks. Alison, you've seen a bit of a croaky voice this week. Have you got a cold? Well, uh, yeah, just a bit of a <laughs> cold, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing too major, mind. Well, you know, it's not you... a bloke flu or anything, you know. Oh, right, I see. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a what? Yeah, yeah. A bloke flu. What's a bloke well, flu? Well, it's always ten times worse than what we get. Oh, I see. I yeah. thought you meant that you'd been with a bloke who got <laughs> <laughs>